This is a paid commercial program. Unless otherwise identified, the guests on the program are employees of or otherwise represent the advertiser. The opinions expressed therein are those of the advertiser and do not necessarily reflect the views and policies of CKNW. Welcome to Dollars and Cents. I'm Elaine Scollin, along with Blair Manton from Sands & Associates. They're experts in helping you get out of debt. Talking about getting out of debt, let's talk about a debt strategy, Blair, and the idea that maybe a debt strategy can sometimes be the trap for folks. Um, I know you, you've you talked about before that whether you somebody considers your debt a, a minor nuisance or a major category or something that's growing, most Canadian consumers want to shrink their debts as fast as possible. So Blair, let's talk about mistakes people make that often keep them in debt longer and maybe some stuff on what people can do instead. Yeah, that, that's great, Elaine, to start there on some of the mistakes people make because you, you hit it right on the head. No one wants to be in debt as a permanent state. You know, it's not comfortable typically, especially if you feel like things are, are kind of running away from you. But sometimes the steps that you take to actually get yourself out of debt, um, they don't solve the problem. Sometimes they can compound into an even bigger problem. So right off the top, let's talk about a couple of things. So first is the idea of putting your assets at risk. So the mistake that people make sometimes is they say, you know, I've got certain assets and I'm mistakenly believe, oh my gosh, you know, those could be taken from me anyway if I don't pay my debt. So let me be in control. Let me cash in these assets to pay debt. And the number one blinking light that I just see, and it breaks my heart sometimes, is RRSP funds. So for any longtime listeners of our show, they would know this well, but for anyone who's just tuning in, uh, very clearly, RRSP funds are federally protected. So money that you save for your retirement, you can never be forced to cash that in to pay debts. You can never be forced to surrender any of those funds. And that's yours the same as if it was a company pension plan. You know, there's a small exemption that if, you know, you put a bunch of money in and the year before you filed the bankruptcy, some of that would come out. But otherwise, any money you had sitting in an RRSP, you know, it's safe from creditors no matter what. But the challenge that people run into is they say, you know, I've got money in my RRSPs. I think it's enough to clear my debt. And they cash in the RRSPs, which first off, that's giving their creditors more access than they would ever have to those funds. But secondly, there can be some unexpected costs, especially with RRSPs. Uh, There's tax withdrawals that are going to happen. There's tax withholdings at source. And sometimes that's not even enough. And you end up with a tax bill at the end of the year. So you thought you were going to get a certain amount. You end up getting less than that amount because the taxes that are withheld. And then you end up owing the government some money at the end of the year because you didn't anticipate the higher taxes and RRSP funds. And then the last, you know, kind of triple whammy on this one here uh, is then you don't have your retirement funds. And that can be very difficult to replace depending on your age and stage in life. So if you're thinking of cashing in your assets to pay your debts, you should stop, pause, get some advice, and definitely understand that your RRSP should never be cashed in to pay debts. And it's such a logical thing for people to think, listen, I've got this money, um, I'm going to put it towards the debt, it's the right thing to do, the smart thing to do. For me, it'll make me feel better, but often it's 
it's the worst thing that you can possibly do. Well, that's right. And if you if you know all the facts and you make that decision clear eyed saying, yeah, I'm willing to, to cash in my retirement to pay a bunch of taxes just to get out of debt. OK, you've made that with all information and that's OK. But my challenge is a lot of people that I, I break the news to them saying, you know, that was federally protected. You didn't have to do that. They, you know, they, they start to tear up sometimes. And, you know, I'm as compassionate as I can, but I wish they had asked me the questions beforehand before they'd taken such a drastic step. And sometimes they're counseled down that road by collection agents or even bank employees that say, oh, yeah, there's no protection for RRSPs. You know, you do it now or we're coming for them. So the person just wants to be in control. Uh, so definitely it's an unfortunate thing. If people take nothing else away from this, be careful about your RRSPs. Just don't cash them in. I think this is a, another good one to always remember, and it comes from a good place. People who love you and know you, who are family members or close people, want to give you a hand. And so they say, hey, you know, what can I do to help you here? Can I co-sign something for you to help you get out of debt? And again, this is a, a, such a great explanation. It, it's the worst well, if not the worst, it's not a good thing to, to do is include others in, in your responsibility. It's highly risky. You know, it's a very wrought with many different factors when you start to involve uh, where there's an emotional relationship already, whether it's a friend or a family member, and then you make it a financial relationship. Uh, there's a huge potential for that to backfire. It's something we always generally uh, suggest that you avoid. So if you co-sign a debt for somebody, you know, first off, you're signing to be 100% responsible for that debt. It's not the 50-50 that you might be thinking. You're on the hook for 100% if that person that you co-signed for can't pay. Um, and you can imagine if that person's having difficulty paying, you know, they're going to feel that much more emotional distress now letting you down the cosigner as well as all the other banks and credit card companies and things like that. And potentially starting to ruin your credit, the cosigner, because if a cosigned loan starts to get delinquent, that is going to have an impact on the cosigner's credit rating. So I've never seen a situation where cosigning a loan worked out very well for an individual if they have ended up having to restructure everything altogether. What can work out really well is give that person the support that they need to get help. So help them understand there's a licensed insolvency trustee out there. Help them understand there can be a consumer proposal remedy. And if you do want to help them financially, I'll help them reduce the debt through a trustee and then help them with that reduced balance through a proposal. That's not putting you at risk at all. And they're going to get some good counseling along the way. Everything's going to be very legally regulated all above board. So it's just going to be a better outcome than just deciding, yeah, I'm going to put my name on the line to help out this person. It can often backfire and end up in a worse situation. And to take that first step, I want to mention that Sands & Associates, this is their website that you can easily access. It's sands-trustee.com. Or if you want to give them a call, they've got a 1-800 number. It's 1-800-661-3030. And set up that appointment and sit down with somebody like Blair and talk about what options you may have. I know something that lots of folks think about doing is actually turning to lenders for solutions to manage their debts. Um, what are your insights on that as an idea? Well, that's almost where everybody, that's where almost everybody starts is, you know, I've got all this high interest debt. Can I at least consolidate it together, put it together at a lower interest rate? Logically, that makes a lot of sense. But, you know, first off, it's very difficult to consolidate a whole lot of debt unless you're willing to pledge some assets, which we said earlier, just don't do that. Uh, or unless you've got really stellar credit, uh, which a lot of folks, if they're juggling a bunch of debt, they've already maybe missed a few payments. So sometimes it's very difficult to get approved at a bank for a consolidation loan without having assets or a cosigner. And if the bank isn't going to approve you, you might be looking at some, you know, we'll call them subprime lenders or alternative lenders or folks you might see advertising on the Internet sometimes. Uh, their rates for consolidation can be exceptionally high. 
Um, there can be a bunch of penalties if you don't pay on time. In some cases, you're putting your car at risk to consolidate uh, a bunch of other debts. So you've just got to be very careful if you're consolidating your debt that you're getting a reasonable rate and also that you're actually able to afford that consolidation. Because even if you end up working with a credit counselor and they get you down to zero interest, you still got to pay off all your debts over a five-year period. Um, if it's a lot of debt, that might not be affordable. So you might be t- tying yourself to a consolidation that's just going to put you further and further into debt each month because you're starting to borrow to make that consolidation payment. So be very careful if, if, if you do consolidate with a loan that is affordable for you and meets your circumstances. Okay, so we've covered a whole bunch of things that you shouldn't do. Let's skip to the things that you should do. Uh, there's a couple of really good tips here that I, that you've given me that people may want to consider. So let's focus on the on the do's as we uh, we've got about four or five minutes left in the segment, Blair. Mm-hmm. Oh, yeah. No, for sure. Let's, let's talk about the positive things. So the things that you can do. And a lot of times when people feel in debt, you know, they really feel out of control. They feel like everybody else is setting the rules of the game. And it's when you start to sit down, look at your options, put some numbers together, you can start to get back that sense of control. So one of the number one things I recommend is to try a financial calculator. And there's a bunch of financial calculators you'll find online. The government of Canada actually does a great job uh, in putting together a payment calculator and a financial goals calculator. So if you go on to Canada.ca and you, you click around a little bit, but you will find, you know, I'm, I'm an individual in debt. There are financial calculators there. You can see exactly um, how long it's going to take you to pay off a credit card bill or a line of credit bill uh, or things like that. And that can help put into perspective, you know, are you making progress doing what you're doing or do you need a different strategy? Um, on our website at sans-trustee.com, we've got a very simple, we call it the debt options calculator. You put in basically, you know, here's my circumstances, here's my amount of debt, show me my options for eliminating the debt based on on my income and and how much I can afford to pay back. And in literally 20 or 30 seconds, you're going to see, okay, if you owe $20,000 of debt, if you filed a proposal, well, the proposal might be able to be filed for $7,000 or $8,000, something like that. And you can see what the monthly payments would be. So it really can make it from this, you know, um, really difficult to understand foreign concept of what is a consumer proposal to say, hey, for my $20,000 of debt, a consumer proposal is $150 a month um, over a 50-month period, something like that, just picking some some relatively uh, strong numbers there. So definitely check out those calculators, see if there's something that jumps out to you that can help you understand if your current progress uh, is the best way for you to go, if there's some other options that might be better. I think one of the most important things that I think about when I think about your organization, Sands and Associates, and the kinds of work you do and how you do it. Um, The number one idea that folks who are phoning you and sitting down with you, they're not alone. And I love the fact that you really stress that, that you're, which, you know, there's some compassion there and some empathy uh, from folks that are sitting down with people who are coming in the door. Well, that's exactly right, Elaine. So we know we're dealing with people, you know, not on the best days of their life when they pick up the phone or walk in the door uh, to the trustee's office or these days, you know, meet us by video conference. Um, you know, it's, it's a tough thing to, to, to live through, but uh, you definitely need to understand that debt is just a way of life for so many Canadians these days. And there's almost nobody that's going to go through their life without, you know, at least one or two, you know, serious concerns 
about debt at some point. They might be a new student who's just graduated wondering about their student loan. Um, they might be a single parent who's just struggling to make to make ends meet uh, and has a credit card bill that's been growing. But as soon as we can get past that idea that, you know, I'm alone in this and nobody cares, we can give the support, we can give the options, we can help people understand that, you know, in an average year in Canada, it's more than 100,000 individuals end up formally restructuring their debt, either with a bankruptcy or a consumer proposal. And in BC, it's often up to a thousand individuals a month uh, are filing a bankruptcy or a proposal. You don't hear about it because it's a very private process. And usually it's only if you really trust somebody in your life, are you going to let them know, um, you know, yeah, I had to take some steps to restructure my debts. But more and more people are understanding, you know, the shame and the stigma. It's not always your fault that you end up in a debt situation that you can't get out of without help. And there's no shame in reaching out for that help. Um, You know, sometimes, and this is, you know, gratifying to do in the initial meeting, is just to spend a couple minutes thinking about, you know, what would your life be like if you didn't have that credit card bill every month? If you didn't have that payday lender calling you six times a day, you know, you can just imagine the mental clarity, the space that you have to actually become the person that you want to be if you're not really dragged down by the burden of debt at every hour. And it's really important for folks to realize that only a licensed insolvency trustee is the one that's going to be able to formally work with you, either to uh, help you through a bankruptcy or get you into that consumer proposal. That's exactly right, Elaine. There's no referral that's needed. There's no upfront cost to ever meet with the trustee. You'll be able to get a meeting often the same day, sometimes even the same first phone call. You'll be sitting down with an expert to explain to you, here's all your options. Here's what Canadian law provides for you. This is all enshrined in law is to give people who've been honest but unfortunate a fair second chance to restructure their finances. So when you sit down with a trustee, it's nothing on the side of judgment. It's all on the side of let's look at the information. Let's look at the situation. Let's understand, empathize, and put together a plan that's going to get you out of debt. So give them a call, 1-800-661-3030 for that consultation. Find an office near you. Check out their website at sands-trustee.com. You're listening to Dollars and Cents. Welcome to Dollars and Cents. I'm Elaine Scollin, along with Blair Manton from Sands & Associates. They're experts in helping you get out of debt. We're going to talk about the insights about dealing with income tax debt uh, from a BC debt help expert. So Revenue Canada, and pay attention folks, Revenue Canada says 9 out of 10 Canadians file and pay their income taxes on time. So that's pretty good. That's a big majority. But there's still a portion of Canadians that carry a tax debt. And of course, that means costs, high stress. So it's so great, Blair, that you're going to talk about some key facts that we should know about tax debt, because I feel like it's a little bit different. It's a little bit different than our regular consumer debt. Would you agree? I would totally agree. It's definitely different in the way that it can arise. You know, sometimes, you know, even without your knowledge, you don't know the actions that you're taking are leading to a tax debt where you typically do know when you're borrowing money. Uh, And then certainly from the recourse uh, that the creditor has, CRA has got a whole lot more tools and they're a whole lot easier to access than the average person or a credit card company or something who is owed money. So definitely it's a little bit different. Uh, I think it's useful to talk about, you know, how do tax debts arise typically? And there's a some 
there's a few ways that they can arise that are sometimes unexpected for individuals. So, you know, someone being self-employed and never paying a dollar of tax, that's not unanticipated that they're going to owe some money at the end of the year if they earned a bunch of money and didn't pay tax on it. But a couple ways that people can get into trouble unexpectedly with taxes, first off, is with cashing in RRSP funds. So what happens when you cash in your RRSPs is the financial institution that holds that RRSP, they're going to withhold a certain amount of tax. Sometimes it's 10 to 20 percent or in that range, and they're going to give you the net amount. So right away, some people are surprising. Well, I withdrew 5000 from my RRSP. Why am I getting 4500 Well, because there's some tax withheld. But then at the end of the year, you need to understand that depending on your marginal tax rate or the amount of taxes that you have to pay based on your income, that amount that was withheld from your RRSPs may not have been even close to enough. So depending on the income level, it could have been, you know, 40% of that money should have been withheld for taxes. And if they only withheld 10% at source uh, when you didn't, when you made the withdrawal and gave you the amount, they're going to come looking for that other 30% uh, when you file your taxes, you're going to have a balance owing. So be careful when you're cashing in RRSPs that you actually put aside enough money to cover uh, the eventual tax bill that's going to come due at the end of the year. So I've had people definitely have done that over successive years and just really ended up in a tax situation where they needed our help just based on cashing in the RRSPs. Um, a second way that, t- that tax this- that can arrive. Yep, go ahead. Yeah, no, I, no, feel free. Go ahead to the multiple jobs. I think this is a really important one because it's something you're relying on somebody else to make sure they don't take too much off or not enough off. And you've got another gig on the side. So it's an important one for sure. Well, yeah, talk about something that you think you're to, you're doing the best that you can, working hard, trying to get ahead, and then suddenly get smacked with the consequences, unfortunately, is when you take on a second or even a third job, uh, you need to be careful that on those additional jobs that your employer is going to withhold tax at the correct amount. Because when you work for a single employer, they estimate your income over the year, and they say, okay, if you're in this tax bracket, we're going to withdraw this amount of taxes from every paycheck. But if you work for a second or a third employer, they don't know your total income unless you sit down explicitly and tell them. Um, so they're just going to put you typically in you know, the lowest possible tax bracket, uh, withhold the least possible amounts of tax. And then at the end of the year, when you go and do your taxes and you find out, well, based on my income, the second and third job, they didn't withhold near enough taxes from my paycheck. Well, then you can imagine how demoralizing that can feel that I worked so hard in these other jobs. And now I've got a tax bill at the end of the year of money I've already spent because I thought it was free and clear, but it just wasn't enough from CRA's perspective. Is there something that you can specifically ask your employer to do and and hope that they do it or, or are they obliged to do it if you ask them or how does that work sometimes? Yeah, good question. Well, what's the solution here? So the solution is just to be transparent and communicate with each of your employers and for your second and or third job. And trust me, I see this a lot, especially in, in the lower mainland here. It's to have that conversation with your employer and ask them to withdraw more taxes than would typically be required based on that income level. You know, if you over estimate if they withdraw too much taxes well guess what you got a nice tax refund at the end of the year it's money that you put away and comes back to you but it's a much better alternative than actually owing some money so definitely sit down with your employers be transparent say here's my total income here's the tax rate that i think i'll sit into um, and then absolutely they shouldn't have any issue adjusting that withholding from your paycheck now people who are self-employed might fall into a special category as well if they've got a salary job and maybe they're doing something on the side. Uh, so self-employed people have to pay attention. 
Oh, absolutely. When you're self-employed, you know, it, it always shocks me that anybody can just set up a business, you know, just tomorrow and be self-employed. No one's going to sit them down and explain to them all the rules for it, but they're going to be held accountable to the letter of those rules, even right from day one. So one spot where I see people get into trouble very quickly is with GST. So you need to figure out if you're self-employed, whether you need to collect GST for your goods or services or not. And in most cases, the answer is yes. If you're earning more than $30,000 in revenue, you need to collect and remit GST to the government. And if you fail to do so, uh, regardless of whether you actually collected it from your clients or not, the government's going to say, well, hey, 5% of what you collected, that's owed to us. And the government views GST debt as even more severe than income tax debt because it's viewed as what's called a trust amount. So the idea is the consumer when they're paying you the self-employed person they're paying you for your services they're also putting five percent for gst that you're supposed to hold in trust for the government and if you fail to do so uh, the government can take some pretty aggressive actions including freezing your bank account seizing assets so on and so forth so the most important thing here is just to really understand up front are you required to be a gst registrant uh, and to make sure if you are that you're remitting those funds to gst I, I suggest on a monthly basis you can do quarterly or annually but on a monthly basis you just know you're not going to get very behind if you're clearing that 12 times a year I just want to throw in here as well that, you know, if you don't want to wait any longer, you want to take some action, you think you're in, that that we're speaking to you in your situation, the best way to take some action is give Sands & Associates a call or log on to their website and get an appointment. It's nice and easy to do. The address is sands-trustee.com and their phone number is 1-800-661-3030. I guess the number one thing when it comes to income tax, or at least it is for me, is always file on time. I'm so concerned about the deadlines and how they can sort of shift around a little bit depending on what year it is or what position I'm in. So filing on time's got to be way up there in terms of the best thing you can do to start off well. Yeah, that's number one at the top of the list. It's just down to, you know, the, the Nike slogan, just do it. You know, you've got to file your taxes every year. Even if you don't owe anything, it's in your best interest to file because you might need to prove your income for credit or housing applications. And if you want to receive benefits like quarterly GST checks, or if you're a senior, the guaranteed income supplement, or your Canada child benefit um, as, a, as a couple or individual with children, those are all very important reasons why you need to file your taxes because you won't get those benefits otherwise. And it is your civic obligation. You know, you won't go to jail for owing tax debt in Canada. I've never seen that, but I have seen warrants for arrests for people who have not filed in 20 years and CRA is just at the end of their ropes and doesn't know what to do that's going to get this person's attention. So it's very important just to get your taxes filed each, each year. And there are people that can help you with that, including us at Sands and Associates. If you have debt, sometimes getting you caught up on your taxes is a, is a key part of what we do. But it's important that you do it on time to the deadline. And April 30th is the deadline year in and year out. So April 30th, 30th when your return has to be in and if you're not self-employed your payment for any taxes owing has to be in at that point um, if you are self-employed uh, for june 15th you have until then to file so a little bit of extra time to get all your books in order but you still have to have paid at april 30th so you're required to estimate what your taxes are and if you're wrong you're going to be paying a little bit of a difference there or getting a refund back but april 30th is a very important payment deadline and what's really important about that deadline is if you don't hit 
hit that deadline to file your taxes and get the balances paid, you're going to be charged with some interest that compounds daily. And what can be even more significant is the late filing penalty. Um, so if it's your first year being late on filing your taxes, any amounts that are owing are hit with an immediate 5% penalty. And then for every month that that return is late, it goes up by another percent. So it could be, you know, 16, 17% by the end of the year. And if it's not your first year being delinquent and pay, filing your taxes on time, it's doubled. So it's a 10% hit uh, to the balance right away, plus 2% per month. That's higher than a lot of credit cards, payday loans, uh, interest rates charge. So you've really got to be uh, on CRA's schedule or their, their interest rates and penalties can be quite significant. And tax debt isn't something that ever goes away, does it, unless you actually take, do something about it? No, tax debt doesn't expire. Um, it's one of those few debts that are out there where there's no statute of limitations. So you can't wait it out. Um, you can't, you know, just make a plea of poverty and say, hey, this debt is gone. I can never pay it. Um, you know, obviously, if you've got no ability to pay CRA, you know, they're not going to be able to do that much to you. But it's not the case where you can just, you know, go silent for a few years and just think, well, when I pop back up again, this tax debt is going to be gone. So the only way to deal with CRA is you have to take formal steps. You either have to work with them on a repayment plan and typically they'll be you know flexible to a degree but usually it's about a six-month payment plan is what they'll sign on to and maybe they'll give you some some breaks on the interest and the penalties uh, but they won't be able to reduce the principal at all and if that doesn't work linking directly with CRA uh, the only way that you can achieve tax forgiveness uh, is to work directly with a licensed insolvency trustee and do either a consumer proposal or a bankruptcy which we talk about a ton on the show here. Yeah, and uh, I just want to stress, too, that a licensed insolvency trustee is the only one, is the only one that can deal with CRA on any level in terms of a tax debt. Well, that's right, Elaine. I think it's important for people to know because you do see a lot of advertisements for tax lawyers and things like that. And there's definitely a niche a tax lawyer can play where if you think it's unfair the way that you've been assessed, it's just not right. You need to dispute some of the facts behind your tax debt. That's where a tax lawyer can assist you. But if you say, well, yeah, I just made too much income or I didn't rep- I didn't you know, remit GST as I should have. And there's no mystery about the tax debt. That's absolutely where you need the help of a licensed insolvency trustee. Uh, it's going to be a heck of a lot cheaper than, than paying a tax lawyer per hour. And we've got the defined solution that's actually going to help you deal with that debt. We're not going to dispute it. We're just going to help you discharge it and get rid of it at the end. Now, we just got about another minute or so. I bet one of the questions that comes up for for you from people are, does CRA, can CRA put a lien on my house or how much power does CRA have when it comes to my stuff? Yeah, I think that's a great way to finish here, Elena, not to put the fear into people at all, but CRA has more power than you could imagine. <laughs> um, so I say that as a trustee, seeing what all of their creditors can do, and almost with no notice. So they've got to send, you know, one written notice, but whether that's received or not, if they don't really care, um, CRA can put a lien on your house. So if you've got a house that's not mortgaged completely, or even if it is, CRA will just go in second position. CRA can absolutely place a lien on your house, so when the house is eventually sold, they'll get paid out in full for their amounts that's owing for taxes. Uh, they can also go for your employment income. They don't need to sue you first. They can start to seize wages. Even pensions can be seized up to 100% by CRA, which no other creditor in Canada can attach to pension income, and certainly not for 100%. But CRA has the tools to do it. It's definitely not their first step, but they've got very robust steps they can take to collect if you don't deal with the debt head on. So the best way to deal with that debt head on is go see 
uh, either Blair or someone from their office, Sands and Associates. They've got offices all over British Columbia. Get that debt-free, get debt-free, and connect with a non-judgmental debt help professional. Sands and Associates, the website, sands-trustee.com, or give them a call, 1-800-661-3030, to book your, fr your free confidential debt consolidation. You're listening to Dollars and Cents with Blair Manton from Sands and Associates. Welcome to Dollars and Cents. I'm Elaine Scollin along with Blair Manton from Sands and Associates. They're experts in helping you get out of debt. I'm going to talk about credit card debt. Ugh. Something that I think of every time I use my credit card, I tell you, uh, just adding to the total and knowing that I got to look after it at the end of the month. A super convenient payment tool for everybody or almost everybody. And very common too, uh, I bet. Hey, Blair, like everybody is using credit cards. I mean, there's, they seem to be so available and so easy to get. That hasn't changed, has it? No, so it's definitely it's a trend that seems to go in one direction with, you know, just more and more credit cards being issued. So the latest Canadian Bankers Association survey that I've seen, uh, it said there's 76.2 million visas and MasterCards. So just those two cards in Canada. And what's our population? 35, 38 million. So you do the math there. <laughs> and, you know, 95% of adult Canadians have at least one credit card. So 95% is pretty well everybody. So it's a very rare person that you see that, you know, is just dealing with cash or debt. But most people do have at least one credit card. And from our perspective, uh, I can't remember the last time I've seen an individual who didn't have a credit card debt uh, when they were doing a bankruptcy or a consumer proposal. It's pretty rare. It's just it's an easy type of debt to get into. And it can be pretty difficult to get out of as well on the other side. And we've talked about this a lot over the years, uh, that the terms and conditions on that card are, are buried deep within the, what, the five, six, seven, eight pages of super small printed out material that you get when your credit card arrives. And, uh, and that's, that's the thing, right? I mean, that's the thing that you've got to pay attention to because they are deep in terms of what you need to do and how you need to handle this thing in order to for it to work with you instead of against you. Yeah, that's right, Elena. And it can be intimidating to look through all those terms and conditions where, when you're getting a new credit card, but even spending just five or 10 minutes and looking at a few key categories of, you know, minimum payments, how is that calculated? My interest-free grace period, you know, what does that exclude? Uh, because sometimes you're going to make some purchases and you're going to find actually there's no interest-free grace period because the benefit of a, of a credit card typically is the purchases that you put on there, you're not going to pay any interest if you pay that bill at the end of the month. There's about a 21-day grace period. But some people are quite surprised to learn, well, for cash advances, for example, there is no grace period whatsoever. So from the moment that you take out a cash advance on a credit card, you're subject to the you know 19 to 29% interest rate on most standard cards. Uh, and some people are surprised to say, well, I thought it would just be something I pay at the end of the month. Well, no, you've got interest that accrues from that day. Um, so you've got to clear that interest uh, right from the day that you borrow. But also some things that aren't as clear as cash advances are treated as cash-like transactions. So things like wire transfers, uh, money orders, 
uh, those credit card checks that they can sometimes send you in the mail and you wonder what to do with them. Well, if you use them, it's not like writing a regular check that comes out of your bank account with no interest. It's the same as a cash advance. And even gaming transactions like lottery ticket purchases or using your credit card at the casino, which again, something I'd never recommend, but people do, uh, that's also treated uh, as a cash advance. So definitely be careful that you understand what's interest-free and what's not. Wow, that's interesting. I had no idea that gaming transactions, so they're calculated the moment that you use your credit card to purchase them. Is that right? That's right. They say it's a cash-like transaction. Wow, that's interesting. I had no idea. Not that I'm you know, consider myself super smart in all these areas, but that's quite something. I bet not everybody knows that. No, I, I think that's the case. And, you know, sometimes you only know about the fees once they actually appear on your on your statement. So a few other fees that people can, can get surprised for is an over-the-limit fee. So, you know, even if you paid the balance off in full, but you went over that limit for, you know, a day or two during the cycle, you can get hit with an over-the-limit fee. And sometimes it's $29, $39, $49. It's not nothing. And you say, well, why is this? Why am I paying this charge? Uh, well, gee, I guess I went over the prescribed limit. And if you call the credit card company, sometimes you can negotiate a bit to get it reduced. But, you know, just be aware if you're going to go over the limit, it's better to be proactive and get them to maybe increase the limit uh, or to consider, you know, is it, is it a good thing for me to be exceeding this limit? Maybe there's something else I can be doing instead. Um, you also need to understand there can be charges for inactive accounts. So if you're not making any transactions on the card, you know, sometimes that can trigger a charge. Uh, currency conversion is an important one as well. So if you're shopping, and obviously we're not doing much cross-border these days, but if and when, um, you know, you do shop in a, in a foreign country, um, there's the currency conversion, but then there's also often as much as 25 or 3% added to that balance for a currency conversion extra charge. Uh, and then, you know, other charges, if you bounce a payment or miss a payment, there's a lot of little ancillary fees that can really add up and you just want to be careful you understand the card completely and what can be charged. So I want to suggest if, if this already sounds like your situation, give Sands and Associates a call. Uh, it's very easy to do. It's a 1-800 number. Uh, it's all They have offices all over British Columbia, 1-800-661-3030 or check out their website sands-trustee.com and get in touch. Uh, can you talk about some of the tips on how to, how to pay off credit card balances because it sounds pretty ominous to me. Yeah, so the, the first thing is just the idea of let's try to avoid the balance or at least avoid increasing the balance unnecessarily. So the best practice is only to use the credit card for purchases that you have the cash on hand to pay back right away. So you can either you know use the cash or if you want to use the card because sometimes there's extra warranty or protections, fine, but make sure you can cover those purchases each month. Um, and then with the cash advances, um, just say no. Just don't do cash advances on your credit card. It's very expensive financing um, and usually it's, it's a bad idea. Sometimes people can get a little bit, um, you know, hoodwinked is the wrong idea, but I guess maybe misdirected um, in really focusing on credit card rewards and saying, I want to put all of my spending on the credit card because I'm going to get, you know, a point per dollar or two points per dollar or something like that. Uh, that only makes sense if you're clear on the balance each month. If you even carry the balance for a single month, you've negated probably multiple months worth of those rewards just in the interest fees that you're going to pay. Um, so be careful, you know, not being sucked in by the promise of rewards if that leads to you carrying a balance uh, you've, you've lost in that transaction. Uh, you know, some of the best benefits you can have for with a credit card is just to pay on time and to pay more than the minimum whenever you're able to do so. Because if you're only paying the minimums, as we know from a lot of previous discussions on the show, you know, even $6,000 a debt can be a 40-year payment cycle. And $6,000 is not that significant in the grand scheme of things. But with a minimum payment, you know, that could be the rest of your working life. So you've definitely got to try to pay as much as you can and understand the minimum payment is just not enough. 
And it's really important to pay attention to the interest rates on these things. That's right. So the interest rate is going to be the key determinant of how long you're going to be stuck in debt if you have a balance. And even a 2 to 3% drop in your interest rate can make paying off that debt so much easier and so much quicker. A lot of people don't realize you can phone up the credit card lender at any point and say, hey, I want a better rate. Um, sometimes people say they're so surprised that, you know, how receptive they were to that. They have this low rate card. I couldn't find it advertised, but they were ready to offer it to me over the phone. They don't want to lose you as a client. And if you say that you've done your research and if you just sit down and Google, you know, best credit card interest rates in Canada, you'll find there's a bunch of low rate cards, often with very low to minimal, uh, even to zero uh, annual fees to them. And that can be a very good tool either with your existing lender or to even consider transferring a balance to a lower rate card uh, as long as you're clear there's going to be any charges to that but do what you can to reduce the interest rate you might be able to get you know something more in the line of 11 to 12 percent and not 19 to 29 percent as we kind of come to the end of this segment Blair is there so is there a list of how to pay off your credit card debt like what you should do first what you should do second yeah one thing that I suggest people do and this is the whole idea of let's try if you see if you can get out from this under your own steam, uh, is to sit down, blank sheet of paper, and list all your credit cards by interest rate, highest rates at the top. So typically your store credit cards will be higher than just your bank-issued cards. Look at your monthly budget and figure out how much can you afford to pay beyond the minimum payments. And then what you want to do is to make all the minimum payments on each card, but whatever is left over in your budget that you're able to devote, throw all of that money towards the highest rate card. That's going to be your best bang for the buck. So if there's $500 and you've got four cards and there's they're each $100 minimum payment, you'll make all those minimums, but then you're going to throw the extra $100 on the highest rate card, and that should accelerate you getting out of debt as quick as possible. I think the key, too, is is to sit down with somebody from Sands & Associates and figure out the best course of action, uh, because just doing that may not be enough for some folks. Well, that, that's true, Elaine. So if you sit down and you say, my gosh, I can barely pay the minimums or I can go $10 over, well, then you're going to know, hey, I'm in this for the long haul. I need some help, either a bankruptcy or a consumer proposal with the help of Sands & Associates. It's going to eliminate all the credit card debt. And the time to explore the options is before it's so dire that you think you've got nowhere to turn. Do it before you're extremely stressed out. Come in, sit down for a consultation. We'll help you figure out what to do. Yeah, and they're so easy to get a hold of. They've got offices all over British Columbia. Sands-trustee.com is the website, or give them a call and set, it, set up an appointment, 1-800-661-3030. You're listening to Dollars and Cents with Blair Manton from Sands & Associates, helping you get out of debt. Welcome to Dollars and Cents. I'm Elaine Scollin, along with Blair Manton from Sands & Associates. They're experts in helping you get out of debt. Talking about credit, do's and don'ts and tips from Blair. So whether your goal is to establish a good credit history, pay off debt, or in some cases boost your credit score, there's a lot of aspects of credit history and ratings that folks just don't understand. Uh, and sometimes the things we think are right aren't the right outcome for us at the end. And that's why we've got Blair to talk about the credit mistakes not to make. That's where we're going to start. But first, Blair, can you start by giving some background information about credit scores, just in case somebody doesn't quite know what that means? 
Oh, certainly, Elaine. And I would say there's not a client that walks through the doors of Sands and Associates who doesn't eventually ask them very detailed questions and very good questions about their credit scores, their credit ratings. And it's something that a lot of folks are surprised to learn the facts um, and how much these ratings and scores can change in short periods of time. So just starting at the basics, there's two main credit bureaus in Canada. There's one called Equifax and another called TransUnion. And you've probably heard these names before because they often give press releases with, you know, new stats about delinquencies on debts. Um, and also they've been subject to data breaches. So you may have heard of that in the past where some personal information has been compromised. But these are private companies. Um, they store and share information they've collected from your Canadian creditors about how you use your credit. So each of them has a detailed record on just about every Canadian in Canada who has accessed the credit system at some time. So when you apply for or borrow funds for the first time, your credit report is created. So it's a summary of your credit history. So everything you've done within the credit world, it starts with your first transaction. And in addition to personal information like your date of birth, your address, employment history, and so on, uh, your credit report might have information such as the credit you use and facts about the account, such as balances and payment habits. So what's your high balance this month? Did you pay on time? What's the history there? It's also going to reflect are there inquiries from lenders or others who've requested your credit report. So it can be an indication if someone's going all over town applying for credit six or seven times, all those are going to show on the credit report and that can give a lender some caution before they advance funds. Uh, and there can also be some remarks in there. You can put a consumer statement yourself. Um, you know, if you've been through a bankruptcy or a proposal and want to put a statement saying here were the circumstances, um, you know, it was a car accident or something, you know, outside of my control and I want everyone to know about that, um, you have the right to put that in your credit report. And then also some fraud alerts if you've been a victim of an identity theft or something along those lines. So quite a bit of information goes into your credit report. And what a lot of people are really focused on is the credit score. And this is a numerical, a three-digit number. It ranges from 300 to 900, with 300 being, uh, you know, on the very lowest possible scale, very uncreditworthy, to 900 being, you know, exceptionally creditworthy, about the highest you could get. Uh, now, it's impossible to actually know this exact number. And some people are quite surprised. They say, well, I can go online and I can pay for my credit score. Well, yes, you can, but that's not your real credit score. That's just the credit bureaus basically selling you a number that they create, but even each lender individually, so each bank, each credit card company, payday loan or whatever that does a credit report on you or credit check, they're going to calculate their own credit score. And it's a closely guarded secret about how they actually put those numbers together. So what you pay for online of your credit score, it should be indicatively correct, but in no means is it going to be your exact credit score. People are surprised to learn that. Oh, that is interesting. I didn't realize that either. Um, I still have this question. Why do people and consumers care about their credit history or what a credit bureau or bank scores them at? Like, when does that really come into play for someone? And that's a good question, Elena. And a lot of people, I think, care far too much about their credit score at every point in their life when it's really only important at certain points when you need to borrow funds, maybe for a mortgage or for a car loan. But a lot of people are focused on keeping perfect credit and sometimes at the expense of their overall financial health. Um, financial health. But a couple things where it's really important to be aware of your credit history and credit score is you want to spot signs of identity theft. 
So if you're not checking your credit report at least every year, you might not have any idea that someone's opened a bunch of accounts in your name, they're running up credit. Well, you might not be held accountable for that credit. Uh, if it goes delinquent, it could be when you're ready to buy the car or get the mortgage, suddenly there's all this stuff in your credit report you had no idea about because you've been a victim of identity theft. So you want to make sure, you know, obviously all the accounts on there are yours. Um, and a lot of the time why people want to have a strong credit score is because that's what a lender is going to look at when they're ready to borrow. A lender is going to look at the credit score and the history to decide if they're going to lend you money. And if they do, what rates and terms are they going to extend to you? So someone who has a much higher credit score uh, than, than lower uh, is obviously going to get better rates or get more access to credit than someone who's on the lower end of the scale because the creditor is going to think a high credit score means they've been good in the past. They're going to be good in the future and paying back all of the new borrowings. So it is important if you're going to take some action, if you're going to borrow some money, you need to pay attention to what your score is just so you know what it is going into a negotiation. Does that make sense? That's exactly right. So, you know, if you have a goal that in, you know, three years from now, I'm going to have enough money saved uh, for a down payment with a mortgage, well, then make a plan that your credit score should be peaking around that time and start taking some steps now. Uh, if you know you've just, say, graduated school, uh, you know, you're 10, 15 years off of getting into the mortgage market, you don't need to pay a whole lot of attention to your credit score. You know, yes, pay your bills on time. That's just, you know, good hygiene to do for, from a financial perspective. Uh, but managing your credit score down to the letter, that doesn't make a whole a lot of sense. Um, you just really need to be careful you're not chasing a perfect credit score at every stage because your credit score can change dramatically in the matter of just a year or two. Literally, people can come out of bankruptcy proceedings, which is about the worst thing or toughest thing you can do to your credit, getting it essentially down closer to the 300 side. Um, and then within two to three years, they can be getting mortgages approved, credit card offers with no risk premiums, nothing like that, if they've done the right thing. So it takes about two to three years to really change your credit dramatically. But even in a year or so, you can have some significant impacts on a credit score. I know that your website has some good information about uh, credit and how to pay attention to it. And I'm just going to give folks their, the, your website again. It's sands-trustee.com. And it's really just filled with good questions and answers on all aspects of debt, including credit, if it's something you'd like to check out before you take the next step. Um, how, how you use your credit and your personal spending habits make up a bulk of your credit history. We know that. Which has the biggest impact on your credit score? Yeah, there's some really good best practices people should keep in mind. So, you know, first off, uh, the longer you've had an account that's open, the better this is for your score. So you might have heard the advice, okay, if you're applying for credit, go and close some other accounts because it's going to look better if you don't have a whole lot of open credit. That's just completely wrong. Um, any history that you had with those accounts, two or three years, a great payment history, never missing a payment. Once you close that account, that history is gone. So having some old accounts that you continue to use, that can be important. And yes, you can transition to newer accounts, but I'd recommend you don't close the older ones until you've built up some good history with your newer accounts. You, know, you can remove the limits down to something very low on the old accounts, maybe not use them very much, but you do want to keep that history present there. Uh, you know, another best practice is to treat everything as important. So every debt that you have uh, has the ability to either help you on your credit report or to hurt you. And the small bills, something like a cell phone or an Internet plan, you might, you know, neglect that thing. Oh, it's the smallest bill. I'm going to pay it every couple of months or so. I don't mind the collection calls. But it's been said that more people get denied for mortgages due to unpaid cell phone bills than for any other factor having to do with credit. So be aware that a cell phone company, they know they're not going to hire a lawyer to chase you, but they're going to be very quick to ding your credit if you're habitually missing payments. So make sure that you're treating all of the accounts as important. 
Um, the last tip that I would give here is just to watch your balances. So it's very important that you keep your balances on your accounts less than 50%, and sometimes even less than 30% is a good idea. So that means if your credit card limit is 5000 try not to charge more than $2,500 on that in a month, because even if you pay it off, it still shows that you went above your credit, uh, you know, above the 50% target, and maybe your creditor will think, well, there could be a risk. They're using all this credit all the time. Uh, that's better than so. Sorry, that's worse than somebody who's only using part of their balances on a regular basis. Got it. And again, I just want to mention too, you know, we're, we give you a lot of information in these segments. Uh, check out the website for Sands and Associates. There's so much good information there. It's sands-trustee.com. And if you want to sit down with somebody and hash out your issue, just ask some really good questions in order to figure out your next step. 1-800-661-3030 for that consultation, as well as to find an office near you in British Columbia. You're listening to Dollars and Cents with Blair Manton from Sands and Associates. It's helping you get out of debt. You've been listening to Dollars and Cents. See you next time. The proceeding was a paid commercial program. Unless otherwise identified, the guests on the program are employees of or otherwise represent the advertiser. The opinions expressed therein are those of the advertiser and do not necessarily reflect the views and policies of CKNW. Hi, it's Shauna, and I might be a bad parent because my kids think french fries are vegetables. Hey, it's Ryan, and I might be a bad parent because I went out for wings when my wife was in the hospital after giving birth. Johnny here. I might be a bad parent because in my house, the tooth fairy gives pocket change. But we're not alone. Len emailed us and said his six-year-old daughter's Tarzan moment going from love seat to lazy boy by curtains made him more proud than any dance <laughs> recital. <laughs> and Andy left his two-year-old at the rink. All right, guys, I'm sure we're not alone, like Andy's kid. For stories and confessions like this, make sure you check out our podcast. It's called Bad Parents, and it's available wherever you get your podcasts. I left a glove at the rink.